We live in a world where every day brings dramatic changes. The smartphone, barely a decade old, has given billions access to information and capacities they never had before. That's changing what people can do, and it's changing the shape of the future. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. Our children are growing up in a world of wonders, and on this episode, we talk to some of the brightest minds shaping that world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. It has been said that the best way to predict the future is to create it, and on this first episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we speak to John Alsop, one of the folks most responsible for the web that we see and use every day. It's the human story of technology and some very smart cars on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. When you're talking about the web here in Australia, one name inevitably comes up, John Alsop. Back in 2000, when the web was still quite young, Alsop penned some thoughts in the Tao of Web Design, which is still hailed as a big influence on how the web works today. The final line is good advice and not just for the web. The journey begins by letting go of control and becoming flexible. John Elsip is here in the studio in conversation with the next billion seconds about the past and the future of the web. Welcome, John. Thank you, Mark. Okay, so where are we now and how did we get here? Well, I think we're reaching the end of a particular era of not just the web, but computing. And it's almost a contiguous period that goes back to the late 1970s. I guess it's kind of the, we're reaching the end of this app-focused kind of personal computing era where we think of computers as things that run apps, things that have screens, uh, things that we kind of sit in front of and use to the exclusion of the environment around us. So when we're you, what I mean by that is when we're computing, we're in a bubble. Even right. if we're walking down the street or on the bus. Well, this is the reason why people walk in front of cars when they're staring at their smartphone because you're in that bubble. Right. So I think to some extent we're reaching an end of, of, of that period of time of computing. It's been referred to as a Jurassic period of computing by Scott Jensen, who's now at Google and has done amazing work all the way back uh, including to being involved with the earliest uh, prototyping of the Newton at Apple back in the kind of late 1980s. Okay, so if that's where we've come from, if we're leaving this Jurassic era of the web and technology, where are we now and what is that transitioning into? So I think computing will just be a thing that, like water and air, it will just be all around us. It will, I guess I use this term augment us mm. uh, in the sense that it... You know, it will take what we are doing uh, at any given point in time and kind of make it better. And so an example I, I maybe I come back to from time to time is, so we saw the experiment of Google Glass. For folks who might not have uh, heard of it, it's basically almost like a monocle that you wear, which flashes information up over one eye. Right, a kind of heads-up display right. for life. And, uh, you know, th this has long been our idea of the future of computing. Somehow it's always going to be in front of us. And think back to um, RoboCop. Mm-hmm where, you know, he had this constant display of information about the right. world in front of him. And Terminator before that. Exactly. So this has been a, a trope, a, a standard idea of what the future is going to look like. Mm. And so Google Glass was this very high-profile 
hugely budgeted effort by one of the richest companies in the history of the world to sort of imagine and build the future. And mm. it's sort of largely a flop, right? And I, I could go on for quite a while about why I think it was, but one of the reasons why I think it was is essentially it was this kind of final gasp of this idea that computers are screen-based right? and they're always kind of interrupting us. And almost virtual reality, we're literally right. gluing this the screen to your eyes is right. almost it's 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 the last gasp of the last gasp right and, and and a lot of people talk and i know you're very interested in the idea of augmented reality mm. right the idea is we take reality and we add to it and i use that term kind of augmentation as well but one area that really interests me is is maybe we we've got it wrong in how we interface computing and i'm really interested in for example uh apple's airpods which are the kind of wireless earphones that sit in your ears and when they first came out i thought oh that's a stupid idea like, oh, the people are going to lose them. They just look like a really – and then it took me about half a day to realize, no, 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 that's that's genius, right? Because what comes next never arrives instantly fully formed like the goddess Athena, right? right. And it was it the future always begins by looking like an expensive toy. Right, right. So if you look in the US in Major League Baseball, and my understanding is that a great many Major League Baseballers have LASIK eye surgery to give themselves augmented vision. Right, 2010 vision. Right. And, and, and so I've read articles along those lines. I haven't kind of got all the details. And right now, for example, a whole lot of people who are either born with or, or due to, for example, hearing loss uh, due to injury or, or disease have computers embedded in their heads. Like cochlear implants. Right. Now, and we think of this as something that augments people who have diminished capacity and mm. capability, right? I honestly think most of us are going to have that in the next 10 years or so. It will just be something we, we are... We get inserted. So we'll be wearing AirPods and they'll be tuned into, well, maybe the music we want to listen to, but also maybe the local traffic so we can tell when the car is getting too close or so it be, they become another set of senses for us. Yeah. So firstly, they make us all like Daredevil. So in the Marvel <laughs> comic, like Daredevil is blind, but has this extraordinary ability to hear. Now we can do that. We, we, right. we could literally give ourselves that level of hearing or, today. Or, or hear in the ultrasonic like a dolphin did. Right. So we can pull in things that are beyond our hearing capacities. Right? Mm -hmm. So there's that level of it. But also, as you say, we can tap into background computing resources. We can interact not only by being told things in mm -hmm. the background. So, so if I walk up to someone and my my phone recognizes their phone as someone I meet maybe once a year at a conference and it says, hey, John, this is Mark. Oh, hey, Mark, how are you going? Right, Things that very unobtrusively simple, simple ways and that we are augmenting our memory, augmenting our capability. You know, as someone who's now in the throes of middle age, having that capacity at hand, I would sign up for that immediately Absolutely. if I could know everyone's name as they walked up to me. Absolutely. And, and that sounds like a really trivial example. And, and the thing that I find about when the future emerges is it often – starts, as you say, as an expensive toy, as an idea that seems kind of trivial at first, but when you pull on that thread, you find some really interesting consequences. So I think what this is alluding to is the way in which screens, for the most part, disappear. It doesn't mean we're not going to continue to use computers with screens as we always have, right? Because visual sensors are very high bandwidth and very valuable, but they're very low bandwidth when I'm out in the world. Mm. I get run over because I'm looking at a screen, for example, or I... I, I 
piss someone off because I'm looking at my phone instead of talking with them. Right. So we really need things that keep us outside the bubble. And, you know, you can take a look at some of the ways the world was weird in 2016 and in 2017. It's because people are spending a lot of time inside their bubbles and not really tuned into what's going on around them. So maybe what we're seeing then is part of this transition away from the Jurassic into the modern era are we're using all of these computing resources to help us tune in rather than to tune out? Yeah, like be more human, Mm -hmm. right? So I I tell the story of the most connected man I have ever met, and he will continue and probably will always be the most connected man I ever met. This is in 2004. This is in New Zealand, in Wellington. In 2004 in Wellington, we didn't have ubiquitous Wi-Fi and super fast 4G networks. In fact, these things barely worked. We didn't have smartphones, right? We barely had PDAs. So I, I was picked up in a car to go and speak at a conference. And in the front seat was a man who'd been blind since he was birth, since he was born. And at one point, we're having a great conversation. He's from New Zealand. We're, you know, this is traveling in from the airport. And then he turns to me and says, look, I'm really sorry for being distracted. I've been answering my emails. Now, today, if someone had said to you in a car, I'm answering my emails. He wasn't driving, by the way. But we'll get to self-driving cars in a minute, I'm sure. But... Like, it's hard to describe now just how jarring an idea this was. Mm. But what was happening was he he, he worked for a company that built um, Braille interfaces mm-hmm. to then wince the Windows CE kind of mobile devices. Yeah. Right? And th- these were really expensive interfaces on top of really expensive computing, so about $10,000 worth of computing, sitting in his jacket pocket, and he had his hand inside his suit pocket, where he was tactilely reading and emailing that replying to emails, all the while having a conversation with us, all the while none of us in the back seat had any we were any way aware that he was doing this. Mm-hmm. Right? And this this is in the context of incredibly primitive computers by today's standards, incredibly primitive networks by today's standards. And why this keeps coming back to me well over a decade later is is because the way in which he interacted was was somehow kind of less interrupted than we are generally by... It was more seamless. Absolutely. It was integrated into his life, right? And I just feel that will be the step function change in computing from, from today into the future. So in the Jurassic era, computers owned us... And in the era we're going into, we own the computers. Yeah, look, we, we, we have to enter a place to compute, right? And it used to be big rooms, right? And then it was our office. and then, But we're still, at least metaphorically, entering this computing place when we compute, when we use computers. Right. And I think they are coming to us rather than we are going to them. You're listening to The Next Billion Seconds. We'll be right back with John Alsop. And we're back. John Alsop is in the studio with us. And now we're going to be talking about one of the most exciting areas of the next billion seconds, autonomous cars. So, John, we're now at this transition point again where the computers have left the foreground. They're receding into the background. And we're starting to see this showing up in some very interesting ways. Now, you have four daughters. I have four daughters. God bless you. Oh, that's right. Someone's got to do it. Uh, one, the oldest one is 11. What do you see around the transition that they'll see over maybe the next 20 years of their lives? So I live somewhere where I have to drive quite a long way with the kids from, you know, at the weekends, it's, it's half an hour drive out to all the activities they do. So we spend a lot of time talking about that and they've lived a lot in there. 
their cars. And when, when kids get to be, you know, their late, you know, their early teens, I guess, at 11, you're very much in your early teens these days, they kind of start thinking about, oh, I can't wait till I'm driving. And, and I remember this conversation relatively recently with my oldest and the other kids are in the car and she said, oh, I can't wait till I drive. And I thought to myself, you know, you're going to drive probably, it's only five or six years, but my four-year-old, she's not going to drive. She's never going to learn to drive. And my seven girl, my daughter who's just turned seven, I don't think she is either. So I've got this split. I think my two older girls will probably learn to drive, but I, I definitely don't think driving will be a thing humans do by the time my four-year-old, you know, in, in, in a dozen years' time. So in a dozen years' time, we'll have autonomous cars, self-driving cars, and it'll probably be that your insurance company will pay your four-year-old to never drive because it's always going to be cheaper to insure her. And it may even be your medical insurance that pays, not even your car insurance, because it's always going to be safer, particularly when you're a new driver, to be able to have a car drive than to have someone drive. Yeah. And I think these are the really interesting first order effects. I think they're things we can easily see. But as with you, you know, we spend a lot of people who think about the future, Mm. I think it gets interesting when you think about second order effects. Now, it doesn't matter if you're an investor. It doesn't matter. Like the first order stuff, like, okay, so what I mean by that is what happens if X, you know, what happens if we no one drives anymore? And we start thinking about, okay, well, insurance premiums get cheaper. We have fewer accidents because, you know. But what happens to parking? What happens to deliveries? They're the second order effects that when really cars me park as well, themselves, right? you can park them very close together. You can right. park them like seed sardines or, in the can. Or do they ever park? Right? Or, are, they, are they productive? far more than 5 to 10% of the time, right? Are they delivering things? Are they conspiring against us to overtake us all? I don't know, right? There are are three stages that I recently saw in a chart. The first one is the self-driving car that a person owns. So you might own a self-driving car and you give it to the kids when they need to go somewhere. The second one is the car for hire. So effectively like an Uber model. And Mm -hmm. that car, as soon as it drops you off, is off on another hire. And then the third model, which I thought was really interesting, is cars that own themselves. Absolutely. All right. right. So you have an autonomous vehicle that is autonomous, that is its own LLC, probably making its own money, deciding how and where it's spending its time. And I read that. And in one sense, it makes perfect sense. But then in another sense, it's like, wait a minute, this is the robot revolution where cars are truly not just autonomous in that they can drive themselves, but they have agency. They can decide what they're going to do. Yeah. Look, it's debatable how close agency is, right? But the moment it comes, it will be very quickly incredibly cheap, right? Mm. But we, Moore's law will impact on AI to the so extent- Moore's law meaning that, you know, basically every 24, 36, now more like 48 months, computers get smaller and faster and cheaper. Right. So, so basically, you, you can do twice as many things for the same price right. every couple of years, right? Which doesn't sound like a lot, but you go a couple of years, a couple of years, a couple of years, and suddenly you are 64 times faster or 64 times cheaper- mm. And, and and I think that's when it gets very interesting. And I think you know, her, the, the, the film by Spike Jones, which kind of is very much about the emotions and emotional relationships, has, I think, some really interesting thoughts behind it. So and why, why do all the AIs disappear at the end? Mm. Well, they've just got so incredibly smart mm. that the gaps in between their interaction with humans are becoming eon-like in their appearance. And, and, and I think that's, that's what's kind of going and, to happen. And effectively, we bore them. Uh, so they that, go elsewhere. And that's why they're having relationships with dozens and hundreds of people. Right? But the, po- the point is, once we get anything that looks remotely like intelligence, it will, within half a generation, even within, within a handful of years, mm. become just 
our phones will be intelligent and then our watches will be intelligent and then, you know, the smaller and smaller well, devices will become intelligent in the sense that they and, will be sentient human beings. And then your AirPods are intelligent and they're actually figuring out what you need to be listening to rather than you figuring out what you need to be listening to so that what is going on is more of a collaboration. So it's not just you in your world figuring out what's important for you, but you in collaboration with these other intelligences deciding what's important. And that means that you actually need to sit down and maybe have a bit of a conversation about what your goals are together so that you're actually all headed in the same direction. Because if you're not, if you're having an argument with your car about your life goals and that will happen, then <laughs> you're going to end up sticking in the driveway. Well, Hal famously said, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't let you do that. Right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, <laughs> I'm sorry, John, I can't let you go to work so today. So that was a work of genius from nearly 50 years ago to observe that at some point when computers get really smart, they're both going to possibly be wiser than we are and have their own motivations that are going to be at odds potentially with us. And we're looking at now, people are starting to map out the reasons that an intelligence would want to disobey you. You know, what are the rules there? You don't want an intelligence that's just going to be randomly disobeying because that's basically a three-year-old. You don't want that. You want a reflective... I'm not going to do that because that's going to hurt me or it's going to hurt you. Well, maybe or maybe it's, it's a third hurt. order effect. So there's a famous story by Asimov. Um, I can't remember. He wrote extensively. Obviously, he he devised these three laws of robotics mm. that essentially was supposed to be an ethical framework so that robots would always get the best possible outcome. And uh, in this particular story that I forget the name of, but it has stayed with me, these astronauts were looking to travel faster than light. Mm -hmm. And so the, the robotic minds were given this challenge to make this happen. But clearly, it was going to have to kill the astronauts in order to achieve this outcome. But after they died, something about this would also then resurrect them. And so it became this great challenge. The, the robot kind of knew that the third order effect would be they would travel faster than light. And while they will have died, they will have then been resurrected. And so the end outcome was going to be fine. But it was all about the ethical and human conundrum around that. You know, it was like playing go that far down the track. Like when it comes to that that many levels of sort of complexity to making a decision that humans just can't, when our when robots are doing this for us, well, what so happens? You, you now bring up Go, and of course last year we saw AlphaGo, computer program written by Google engineers in London. Well, be was it really written by them or was well, there, it just- There is the question, but right. beat- a, a grandmaster at Go, four games out of five. I remain convinced that AlphaGo threw one of those games so that they wouldn't get scared and unplug him at the end. Because if you seriously just wipe the deck with a human opponent, people are going to get worried. And I know people giggle when I tell them this, but I actually, I'm not sort of saying that it was a conscious motivation, but I actually think that people would have been a lot more scared if it had wiped what I, the deck what I have with heard a human around, player. Well, what I've heard about that particular game that, that the humans human won was that his style of game changed because of the way because Go he was learning from because the he AI. learned from the AI right? and the AI was so good because it had played a few human players and then they taught Just it played itself so it could play itself 150,000 right. games right. or something right. there's your 10,000 hours right there yeah well Yes, and, and we now see the same thing happening in poker, uh, but a computer still can't beat multiple humans because there's too much craziness. There's too much right. wackiness going on when there's multiple people lying to you because poker is effectively a game of lying. It's right. a game of misinformation and hiding information, and computers can kind of work it out when it's one person that, that's lying to them, but if you give them a whole table to people, they fail completely right now. Yeah, and then there's the work 
that Watson, for example, which is IBM's effort that people may be familiar with the one jeopardy playing against humans, but Watson is being applied to many, many areas. And one area is around oncology, where basically Watson isn't better than the very best oncologists at you know diagnosing people with cancers, but it's as good as anyone, mm. right? So the question then becomes, do we get replaced by these devices or do they augment our inherent capability. And that's why I come back to that word augmentation. Having talked to the IBM folks who came to Australia to sell Watson, they, the way they frame it is it's the quiet voice in the doctor's ear. So it's helping inform the doctor to make the best possible decision at any point in time. But that said, it just happened in Tokyo about a month ago. They used Watson to diagnose a case of lymphoma that no other diagnostician had been able to diagnose. And it was because Watson has 600,000 patient records that it can analyze. So it was able to figure out that this man had this incredibly rare form of cancer and a treatment, but no other doctor in Japan had ever seen that cancer. And so they just didn't know how to look for it. So in some cases, these rare edge cases, it's going to be better than a doctor. So we're going to have to ask ourselves as humans, what do we do that computers aren't good at? There's someone I put recently online that I know really well. He said, never compete with machines. And it's, this, is, this has been true since the Industrial Revolution began. The machines have completely de-skilled and taken out of the equation kind of master craftsmen, uh, which is where the Luddites originally came from, uh, all the way through now with self-driving cars impacting on deliveries, impacting on truck driving, which is one of the major professions, at least in the US. Um, and so we have to ask ourselves, and I guess getting back to the question around my own daughters and the impact for them, because, you know, their age, I start thinking about helping them choose what their life looks like. Whatever you do, don't compete with machines. Traditionally, we think about in terms of pure muscle, we think of blue collar work, but that's all been done. That's all, that's over. What Now it's now accountants it's the and lawyers. And the accountants, the lawyers and the teachers. And that's the interesting thing is that I talk to a lot of teachers to help prepare them for precisely this. How do you educate a child who's going to grow up in a world where there's a lot of AI around, which is the question you're asking about your, your daughters. And I said... I, I mean, I think the way forward, and it's hard for an educator to think about this, is to think about the AI as partnership, right? That you're actually using the AI to make yourself better at whatever you're trying to be excellent at, and you're using them fully because you're always going to bring your own uniqueness and your unique qualities to that. And those unique qualities are the human element there. And until, well, we don't know how far in the future that unique element is literally irreplaceable, probably for the most of, certainly our careers and probably for most of your daughter's careers. I tend to think so, right? There's there's a whole, cha- <laughs> I ch- the whole challenge of, well, and then it leads to the next question, which is that second order societal effect. What happens when no one really needs to work anymore? I mean, the way in which the Protestant work ethic responded to that is to consign those who were excluded from the workplace to the poorhouse and and to create a whole kind of narrative around worth based on people's like kind of ability to work, even in the absence of actual work for them to do. So I think there's a heap of societal challenges we've got to start thinking but, about. But there. even if we, we take that out of the equation, if we can get over the guilt around that, there's this wonderful line from Freud, work is the best therapy. Right. Because work brings us face-to-face with ourselves and with other people in a meaningful way, in a meaningful context. And so there are a lot of reasons that just have to do with our constitution as people for why we want to continue to work. But yes, we're going to have to have a deep think about what meaningful work is and what meaningful work is in the context of how we're not competing with the machine, but collaborating with people and with machines.
John Elsop is a parent of four girls, and what he's been able to do is take a look at how the future is affecting his children by looking at the world from their point of view. He can see that the world of connected technology, of a web that's everywhere, of smart cars, is going to affect each of his children differently, that each of them will have a different experience for the world as they grow. Every one of us who has children can actually put ourselves in their eyes, in their place, and get a look into the world over the next billion seconds. And that's your invitation to join us because we want to find out from you what you think the most interesting parts of the future are. What are your best ideas for the future? Take that gadget that you want to create or that degree that you want to get or that game that you want to play and write it down and send it to us at brainwave at nextbillionseconds.com. At the end of every episode, we'll be asking for your feedback. Are these ideas goers? Could they be better? So please... Email your ideas to brainwave at nextbillionseconds.com because the best future is the one we create together. Drop by our Facebook page, send us a message on Twitter, or visit our website at nextbillionseconds.com. Tell us what you want to know about the future and we'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. On the next episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we'll talk to designer Andy Pullane about a world that is so smart it anticipates our every need. That's the next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Nick Slater. Music by Kurt Godfrey. For more podcasts, head to the Podcast One app or podcastone.com.au. This is Mark Pesci. Thanking you for listening.